Good morning. Good morning. Let's um, open with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for our time together here this morning. Thank you for gathering your people together all across the globe, Father, that your believers are gathered together on this Lord's Day. And we're just thankful for that, that we can gather in peace and without fear. And many of our brothers and sisters around the world are in fear of persecution. And we pray for them and uplift them. And we know that uh, your remnant, Father, even amidst horrible persecution and and father and trials that um, you bring them together and that they just persevere under your care and your watch and we just thank you for that we thank you for all of our teachers throughout lakeside that are teaching today may you bless their time of study may your word go forth in a way that changes lives may you be with our pastor as he brings forth the message from your word later this morning father with courage and conviction and that we would all be different when we leave this place because of your word. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, I get the privilege of being with you for the next six weeks, and I've been jumping around from class to class a little bit, so I've put together a series of lessons that kind of stand on their own, but also are somewhat connected. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at personal encounters of people and Jesus, encounters that Jesus has had with individuals. If you want to be turning to John chapter 3, that's where our text is going to be this morning. I've titled the lesson, When a Seeker Encounters Jesus. Are you familiar with the term seeker-sensitive? There are many churches that pride themselves in being seeker-sensitive. Everything they do, from what the staff wears, what topics the preacher preaches on, what the podium is made out of, the color of the nursery walls, Everything is geared towards this idea of being seeker-sensitive, which means making the visitor feel at home. The premise is that if they enjoy themselves and, and feel comfortable, that they'll stay long enough to make a decision for Christ, you know, to be comfortable and, and to feel welcomed. It's kind of the premise behind those type of churches. Now, we would tend for Lakeside to look down on that, that type of attitude because we, the gospel is not all about being comfortable. But there are, on their defense, there are some churches that actually preach the gospel and are geared towards that. But in some ways, they're still lean towards the manipulation or the emotion of trying to get someone to make a decision. And and the worst of those kind of groups, they won't say words like sin or blood or anything that would maybe turn someone away. And we would, of course, look down upon that. That would not be biblical way of, of following the church. Um, but interesting enough, as you study the Bible, the Bible does talk about the term seeking quite a lot. And on the surface, it could be a little confusing. On one hand, you have scriptures like Matthew 7, 7, where we're told to seek and you will find... Jeremiah 29:13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then on the other hand, you have scriptures like the ones in Romans 3:11 that says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks of God. So in reality, both ideas are true. Anyone who sincerely seeks after God will find him. And yet John 6:44 tells us that no one comes to God unless he draws him. So, without the Spirit of God working in their heart, no one would ever even begin to seek after God. 
So in the passage I've chosen to teach on today, we're going to look at uh, the first ten verses of John chapter 3, and here we're going to see an encounter of one that some people call a seeker, a seeker with a, that has an encounter with Jesus. Before we get into the chapter 3, though, it's worth mentioning, if you look back at chapter 2, just to get the context of what's going on, you look back at some of the headings in chapter 2, you'll see that there was Jesus' first miracle at the miracle at Cana, where he turned the water into wine. And then the next heading in my Bible is the cleansing of the temple. You see where he actually went into the temple in Jerusalem and turned the tables over and cleansed them of the money changers and... You find here Jesus interacting with friends and family. You, you see him interacting with groups of people and religious leaders. But now as we turn into chapter 3, you're going to see a series of encounters Jesus has with not with individuals, but with, or not with groups of people, but with individuals. And I, I think this is real interesting to look at, and that's what we're going to be spending the time looking at the next several weeks. So let's get into the text. We'll read um, the first ten verses of John chapter 3. John says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. But do not know where it is, comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? It's interesting as we get into our story about Nicodemus to remember what has happened right before this encounter. I probably could have read verses 23 through 25 of chapter 2 to give you a context of that. But all these people were coming to Jesus and seeking Jesus. And verse, let me just read this. Verse 22 says, or 23, when he said, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. So lots of people were coming to him. It says they were believing in him. But then listen to what 24 says. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he, for he himself knew what was man. So you see here that many people were coming to Jesus probably because of the signs and the miracles and all the things that he was doing. But they were not really true seekers in the sense of coming to faith in Christ. And Jesus said he knew he did not entrust himself to him because he knew their hearts. Now, right immediately after this, he goes into this um, story about Nicodemus. And we're going to find, as we read this, that this is an example of what most scholars believe was a man that actually did come to faith in Christ. And he was a true seeker. So the way I broke the passage down is I broke it into five sections. We're going to, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at it into five sections. We're going to look at the background of the seeker. 
the inquiry of the seeker, Jesus' answer to the seeker. We'll see an illustration for the seeker, and then we're going to look at some application for all true seekers. So we start with the background of the seeker in verse 1. It says, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Simple statement. We all know that Pharisees were religious leaders of the day. But as I began studying this passage, it was helpful for me to refresh my memory of exactly what a Pharisee was and some of the other religious leaders of the time. Because you read about scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin. You hear about all these types of groups. And it was good for me to go back and refresh my memory on that. The first of these is the scribes. The scribes originally in the Old Testament were members of the king's court. They were a group of really highly educated men. They originally had a lot of responsibility, but over the years, their nature of their work basically became one of interpreting Scripture. They were not paid, probably because of the corruption that had infiltrated the priest who previously had this task. But over time, the people quit trusting the priest because of all the corruption, and they turned to the scribes for interpretation of the Mosaic Law. After a while, this interpretation, as you know, became more important than the actual law itself. And I thought, as I thought about this, I thought about our judges today and the way our judges on the Supreme Court interpret the laws, and that actually becomes more important sometimes than the actual law is. So they had tremendous power. They were called lawyers in some places in Scripture because they were considered the experts on the law. They had this tremendous power, and it was binding as they basically controlled the conduct of the people by their interpretations. They became the elite of the society. You all have heard of Josephus. Josephus was a scribe. He began his preparation when he was 14. Now, the scribes were not all Sadducees or all Pharisees. They were some of both. Pharisees and Sadducees were both a religious group and also a political group. And then you look at the Sadducees, they were made up mainly mostly the elite and the wealthy people of the society. Most of the high priests were Sadducees. Most of the aristocrats and the merchants were Sadducees. And Sadducees rejected what was called the traditions of the elders, what was written and, and unwritten interpretations of the law, which was passed down by the scribes. The Sadducees rejected this. They believed the written law of Moses was all that they needed, But they felt that only what was taught in the first five books were really what was important and binding, which meant they did not believe in things like the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in rewards or punishments, which basically meant they didn't believe in heaven or hell. They did not teach in um, angels or spirits. They didn't believe in that. And I remember a long time ago when I first became a Christian, someone told me the way to remember the difference in beliefs between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was mainly over that issue of they didn't believe in the resurrection or heaven or hell, and that's because that's why they were sad, you see. I don't know if any of you have heard that, so that, that's a good way to remember that. Because of these teachings, they were in direct conflict with the Pharisees. The reason they were in conflict with them was because the Pharisees thought that the law should be followed as the scribes interpreted it. They were known for their commitment to keeping all the laws, including the laws of the Sabbath, laws of divorce, laws of oath-taking, but they had a real specific zeal for the laws of purity and the way they would eat and wash and the homes that they could go in because if they were Gentiles, they probably hadn't prepared the food right. They wouldn't be able to go into those homes. So unlike the Sadducees, who were mainly the elite and wealthy, many of the Pharisees were from common people. Not all of them, but some of them were. 
And in spite of that, though, they became very pious because they were so diligent in keeping the law that then they thought themselves better than the people that didn't keep all the laws. Now, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were members of the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ruling body of the Jewish people. It was comprised of 71 members. It was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The high priest was the president of that council. There were times when one or of the other party was in control, but for most of the time, it was a balance of power on the Sanhedrin between both classes. There's a passage in Acts chapter 23 that I read that I think would be helpful if we went back and looked at. Turn over to Acts 23. The first 10 verses gives us an example that really shows this. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin. In verse 1 of 23, Acts 23, Paul says, Looking intently at the council, he said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Now, this is the leader of the council. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try to me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was made high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. As he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly, saying, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. So you see here that Paul used this differences of the release actually to his advantage in this situation. But getting back to our passage in John 3, verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this tells us a lot about Nicodemus, what he, what he was as a, as, a, as a Pharisee, what he believed in. It says he was a ruler, which means he was a member of that Sanhedrin, which had the power of controlling the people and ruling the land. They were under Roman occupation, but they allowed the Jews to rule their country. By, and they did that by this body of the Sanhedrin, the ruler of the Sanhedrin. So he was a member of that. So he believed in obeying all the scribes' teaching. He was zealous in trying to obey all the rituals and rules, not just obeying them, but he was a ruler in this regard, a religious ruler on the highest council and the land for the Jews. He was looked up to and he was respected as a religious leader. So this is the background of the seeker. And verse 2 begins the account of the inquiry of the seeker. Verse 2 tells us that he came to Jesus by night. Anybody want to tell us why he came at night? Wouldn't be seen. He was afraid. As you read and study the different commentaries on it, there are probably several reasons he came by night. One is probably he didn't want his friends and other members of the Sanhedrin to know he was doing this. He came in secret. He didn't want to explain to his contemporaries why he was there. Some believe that he came at night because it was a better time 
to have an uninterrupted conversation. Jesus was busy. Nicodemus was busy. So coming at night would give them more time to talk. This may have been true, but I, I doubt it. I think Scripture gives us the reason to believe that he came by night because he was trying to hide the fact. He didn't want it to be known. Turn over to John 19 real quick. John 19, verses 38 and 39, give us a clue. Verse 38 says, And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, this is after Jesus was crucified. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. He came, he came therefore, and took away his body. Now listen to verse 39. It says, And Nicodemus came also, who had first come at night. So why did John make it a point to say that Nicodemus first came by night? I think he's showing a contrast there. He first came by night. Now he came during the day where everyone could see. So he didn't want people to see. Nicodemus also showed a lot of respect for Jesus. He called him what? Rabbi. Rabbi was the word used to distinguish the teachers. Nicodemus was a ruler and a teacher himself. So by calling Jesus rabbi, he was basically saying he's an equal. We know that he had probably been discussing Jesus with the other leaders because he uses the term we. We know that you have come from God. Nicodemus and most likely the other Jews had been discussing the miracles Jesus had done and they were probably remembering the words of John the Baptist and they were wondering if Jesus could be the Messiah. Verse 3 is interesting because it says that Jesus answered him. This is where my outline gets a little muddy because I'm moving into the third point of my outline which is Jesus' answer and I haven't really answered the second point which was the inquiry. Inquiry means there was a question involved, right? The word inquiry refers that a question has been asked. And the beginning of verse 3 says Jesus answered him. When someone answers someone, they're answering a question usually. What question did Nicodemus ask? What did he say? What's the only Nicodemus' only statement is that you must be a teacher from God because no one can do such things unless God is with them. And Jesus' answer really didn't have anything to do with that, did it? So what question is Jesus answering? So in order to finish point two, we have to start looking at point three, and then you can get an answer for that. Have you ever watched the game show Jeopardy? Most of you have seen that, where they give you the answers and you have to come up with a question. For instance, if the answer was George Washington, what's the question? Who was the first president of the United States? So that's what we have to do here. Let's look at the answer that Jesus gives them, and then we'll find out the question. The answer Jesus gives them is, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what's the question? How can a man be born again? How can man be? He wouldn't have used the phrase born again, but he, how can he get into the kingdom? How can he be saved? I guess is what is in his heart. And, that's, and that's, that's the question that Jesus perceives that is important to Nicodemus without him even saying it. And I refer back to that chapter 2, verses 23, 25. How, does, how come Jesus can do that? Because he knows what's in the heart of men. And he knew what was in Nicodemus's heart. These verses really should be included, I think, because there's no chapter breaks. These, these verses, 23 through 25, are real important to understanding this section. Jesus sees through the spoken word and he goes directly to the heart of the matter. 
He doesn't answer Nicodemus about signs and miracles. He goes directly to talking about the real issue, the need for a transformed heart. So we've in, now we've finished the inquiry of a seeker. No matter what they may say, no matter what the questions and statements they are coming out of their mouths, the true seeker, only thing that really is important is what must I do to be saved. Have you ever witnessed to someone and they want to bring up all different kinds of topics about the Bible? I know cults are great for this. Jehovah Witnesses are real good at, about this and even the Mormons are and other cults. They'll bring up all these topics all around the real issue but the real issue is about Christ and what salvation is, who God is and who Christ is and what He's done for us. And I think sometimes that is an important thing that we need to remember when we're discussing with people is to cut through all of what some of the verbiage that goes on around the issue and cut to the real important issue. So the inquiry by Nicodemus is about the question in his heart about what it takes to become a member of the kingdom. And let's look a little closer at Jesus' answer in verse 3. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is a phrase that is introduced by Jesus, and it's very important to understanding what it means to be saved. The phrase became very popular. I remember probably the 80s. It came, it, people were talking about it all the time, being born again, being a born again Christian. I th it might have been Jimmy Carter. I'm not sure, but it was that error that it became very, very popular. And people were talking like there was almost two classes, a Christian or a born again Christian, like they were different things. Is there a difference between a Christian and a born-again Christian? It's kind of a trick question because basically what you'd be saying when you're saying that is that one of them is not really a Christian, that only the born-again Christians are really the real Christians. So to be a Christian is to be a born-again. You have been born-again if you are a Christian. And I think the, it was obvious that in the 80s when that term was being thrown about all the time that the world, the secular world, people that were using this term did not know what it means. And even people that called themselves Christians did not know exactly what it meant. I've looked at, over the years at a lot of different studies and surveys that have gone out by the Barna Group. And it's interesting when you read those. One I saw recently surveyed thousands of, quote, born-again Christians and asked them a bunch of questions about marriage and divorce and a lot of other things, issues. And at the end of it, it basically said there was no difference between the born-again Christians and the rest of the world. And I think that study was a bunch of baloney because I think it was based on an improper understanding of the term born-again Christian. So that's what we want to break down a little bit. We want to define what that means when I studied the passage, I initially thought that Nicodemus didn't have a clue what born again meant, especially by his response in the next verse. But after reading several commentaries, and I listened to Pastor Steve's sermon from 30 years ago, which would still be where he stands today, I'm not so sure. I think that he may have understood more about it than I originally thought. Nicodemus was a religious leader. He was a, very, he was a very prominent leader of the Jews, and he would have understood the symbolism of baptism, wouldn't he? Baptism was a very um, well-known thing that happened not just in Christianity, but a lot of other religion, and it symbolized the person being reborn into a new life. And I think Nicodemus would have most likely understood this. What he didn't understand was his need for it. For he was under the impression that being a circumcised Jew... A descendant of Abraham, a prominent leader, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a keeper of the law, 
All these things he thought he understood that these things were getting him into the kingdom. He doesn't understand what being born again means exactly, but he knows that Jesus is contradicting what he's been spending his whole life striving for. He's hearing Jesus say, the way you get into the kingdom is by being born again. It's not by what you've achieved or by what you've done. It's by canceling out everything and starting over. So he's confused by Jesus' response because he thought he was doing what it took. So he responds in confusion in verse 4, and I think it's sarcasm. He says, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? So we know he doesn't, he understands a little bit about this, what Jesus is saying, but he doesn't get it completely. We understand that. I think that he did understand enough to know that Jesus was saying you have to start over. You cannot work your way into the kingdom, but you have to be reborn. You have to be made anew. But Nicodemus, he sees this as impossible. That's why he's confused. Have you ever been taken aback by what someone says and it's your turn to respond so you just say the first thing that comes to mind. I think that's what Nicodemus did. He just says, I don't understand, Jesus. How can you go back and be born when you're old? How can you enter a second time into your mother's womb? He can't be born again, can he? And he, he's, he's asking Jesus to explain himself. You know, tell me what you mean. Because he's very intelligent. He, did, he didn't really think that was possible. He's saying, explain yourself. And that's what Jesus does in verse 5. He explains himself by repeating himself, basically, with a couple of little differences. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He's now elaborating on what he just said a minute ago. It's basically a repeat of verse 3 with a little bit more um, added. He, he said, unless one is born again, unless one starts over, unless one has a transformation, he cannot see the kingdom. And this time he has, he has to be born of water and spirit or he cannot enter the kingdom. Now, this phrase, born of water, has been interpreted several different ways throughout the years. I've heard and actually been taught by one of my Sunday school teachers when I was young that it refers to baptism, that one must be baptized by water and the spirit in order to be saved. And I think we all know that scripture as a whole does not support this view if baptism was a requirement for salvation Jesus would have been doing it the apostle Paul would have been doing it I think of John the Baptist's words in Matthew 3:11, where he said I baptize you with water for repentance but one comes after me that baptizes you with the Holy Spirit and with fire he said the water represented repentance not salvation and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that I think we're past that point here at Lakeside that we don't believe that baptism saves you. Others think this water refers to the amniotic fluid in the womb that is released at the beginning of childbirth. So they think the passage is referring to two births. The first being the natural birth and the second one being the spiritual birth. And I actually taught this lesson in a other Sunday school class and we had a great debate on this actually. It was more of a discussion oriented class and we had a pretty lengthy debate on this issue because there was people there that really thought that this was the case. But as I studied this and looked up Scripture and read commentaries, I could find nothing else in Scripture to support this view. There's no evidence that water ever was referred to in this way in the Bible. Also, this verse is just a rephrase or a parallel of verse 3. There's no new added information. It's just a repeat of verse 3. Jesus just reiterates what he said with a little more clarity. If you lay verse 3 over here and lay verse 5 over here, and read them simultaneously. They say the exact same thing. 
They're almost an exact duplication. Verse 3 says, truly, truly. Verse 5 says, truly, truly. Verse 3 says, I say to you. Verse 5 says, I say to you. Verse 3, unless one is born again. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and spirit. Verse 3, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. They're basically saying the same thing with just a little added clarity. And in studying this, I also read by one Greek scholar, C.H. Talbert, that said the construction in the Greek is that of two terms joined by the word and and governed by one preposition. This Greek construction normally points to one act. If two acts were involved, normally two prepositions would occur. I believe, like he does, that Jesus is talking about one act, not two different acts. He is talking about one, being born again is one act, not being born once physically and being one, born once spiritually. He's talking, he's explaining what it means to be born again. Also, the word used for again has different meanings. It is sometimes translated again, as Nicodemus translated it, born again. He thought born the second time. But also the word can mean born from above. And I think that's a better translation, born from above. That's why he reported in verse, responded in verse 4 the way he did about entering back into his mother's womb. Nicodemus was saying that he thought Jesus was saying he had to be born a second time. But Jesus clarified after his response, Jesus then clarified what he meant. He said, you must be born of water and spirit from above, is what Jesus was saying. I don't think telling him he had to be naturally born even makes common sense because everyone is born naturally. I think that is part of it if you used common sense in your reasoning that Jesus was not really saying that. But we do know one thing for sure. Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand what he was talking about. Because in verse 10, he says, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So why would Jesus have expected Nicodemus to understand this? What was Nicodemus? A teacher of the law, which would be the Old Testament. He expected him to understand because he was a teacher. He knew the Old Testament. I think that's why he expected him to know these things. You don't have to turn there. For the sake of time, I'm just going to read a few scriptures that I think Nicodemus should have known. Isaiah 4, 4. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. When you wash something, it's usually with water. Isaiah 44.3, For I will pour out water on the thirsty land. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. Zechariah 13.1, And that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. I think maybe one of the best ones is Ezekiel 36.24-27. He says, For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues. And you will be my people and I will be your God. I think Jesus expected Nicodemus to understand from these scriptures that he was talking about a regeneration that comes from a washing, a cleansing, a purification of the soul that is accomplished only by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also emphasized that it's all the work of God. Verse 6 tells us that there was no human effort. He said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is a prominent theme in the New Testament. It comes up a lot in Galatians. It brings to mind chapter 8 of Romans, where he says, those who are according to the flesh 
set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the mind of the, the things of the Spirit, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God and does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Until one is born again, they are not even able to keep the spirit of the law, nevertheless the actual laws. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus that even if physical death were possible, again, it would still only produce flesh. Only the spirit can produce a spiritual rebirth that leads to life in the kingdom. It's entirely a work of God through his spirit, entirely and completely void of any human effort. That's the message to Nicodemus. And then at this point, Jesus says in verse 7, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So I'm, I'm trying to picture this, and I'm thinking after he says all these things, why did he say don't be amazed? I'm thinking maybe Nicodemus is sitting there with his jaw dropped and just like in amazement at what he's saying. But something made Jesus pick up on that, and he says don't be amazed that I told you this. The word translated must was an usually strong word. He said that you must be born again. And I think that was important. We kind of sometimes skim over that, but it was a word with a real distinct, strong emphasis. It was the same word used when John the Baptist says, I must decrease and he must increase. He was telling Nicodemus with emphasis added that he must be born again to enter the kingdom. It was not optional. It was the only way. And then Jesus the great communicator gives a great illustration to help make his point about the Spirit. I love verse 8. It says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. I love Jesus' use of symbolism. He compares the Holy Spirit to the wind. Many times we've had a hard time understanding things in the spiritual realm, and Jesus makes it easier for us. One of the things we see about this comparison is the origin we don't see where the wind originates from, do we? Any meteorologists in here? Sometimes they might think they know things and they talk about jet streams and things, but when it comes right down to it, what starts the wind blowing? Why does it stop? Where does it go? Where does it begin? Where does it end? We don't really know that much about it. The same can be said for the Spirit. No man can control the Spirit of God. No man can predict how or where He's going to move. Another characteristic of the wind and the Spirit is that both the wind and the Spirit are invisible. can't see the wind, can you? You can see the effects of the wind, but you can't see the wind itself. So how do we know it's real? We know that by its effects, or we see the results. Although we cannot see the wind, we don't know where it shall blow, but we can certainly see the effects. Whether it's a cool, gentle breeze on a hot summer day or the gale force winds of a hurricane, the wind leaves behind its effect. I remember once we were driving back from Kentucky to Florida and I hadn't noticed it before, but over on the side of the hill, you could see where all the trees were just laid down in a row. It was like they were cutting a power line or something, but I knew by the timing of it that what it was, it was a tornado had come through and just laid that down. And you could see plain as day the effects of the wind my wife actually has had her house torn down before we were married by a tornado. And I saw some amazing things in that tornado. I saw twigs stuck through solid wood doors. I saw one house demolished, another house standing completely untouched. It's an amazing thing. And we can compare that type of wind 
analogy to the Spirit. The Spirit, like the wind, can do things we can only imagine. The Spirit moves dramatically in one person's life, and on another we see that it's unaffected. You think about Paul and his road to Damascus experience, and then other people you know who had gradually slow processes of coming to faith. Jesus is telling Nicodemus that the Spirit's work in regeneration cannot always be seen. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be predicted. But the Spirit is real. It's powerful. And His effects can be seen in the transformed life of those that are born again. And yet, we know Nicodemus wasn't totally getting it because verse 9 and 10 tells us that Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a leader in the Sanhedrin, a teacher, but he was a poor learner in this regards. He wasn't getting it. Rather, I think it was he wasn't accepting it. He wasn't ready to give up his religious system and accept the fact that salvation comes from the sovereign grace of God and not by his own works. And if that was all we knew about Nicodemus, we would say that he was like those in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, who showed interest in Jesus because of the signs he was working, but Jesus said that he was not entrusting himself to them because he knew their hearts. We might think that was the case, but we have some more information about Nicodemus. Turn over to John 7, chapter 7, verse 50, 52. John gives us a little information about Nicodemus. It says in verse 50, this is before Christ's crucifixion. This is when he was at, and standing before a trial, being accused, and Nicodemus who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no one prophet arises out of Galilee. And you can see from this that Nicodemus was standing up for Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin and the council. I think that's a touch of what's going on in his heart as he risked being ridiculed and put down by his own cohorts on the Sanhedrin. I, I think this shows some growth in Nicodemus's face. And then the verse that I read before in chapter 19 of John, verse 38 and 39, and this passage, we have Jesus already being crucified. And we see here at chapter 19, verse 38 and 39, I'll read it again. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You see here that Nicodemus is out in the open with a disciple, bringing hundreds of pounds of spices to anoint Jesus' body. Most commentaries and scholars believe at this point that Nicodemus had become a true believer. Now, as I think about this, we always want to bring back application. And that's where I want to end on today as we talked about this. What's the application for all seekers? And that's, as you think about this verse, this is probably one of the most important passages in the Bible because it gives us a real intimate encounter with Christ it tells us what it means to be born again and who can be saved. These are the verses leading up to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. One of the most popular verses in the Bible. And so here Jesus lays out the foundation of the gospel. That we cannot be saved unless we are born from above. Made new 
by a cleansing and repentant heart. And it's made only possible by the Spirit of God. That's the main point of application. And I know that everybody here is probably a believer, but if there's no someone here today that has not come to put their trust in Christ, that's your main point of application, is that you can't do it. There's nothing you can do. You can't work your way into heaven that God has to do it by regenerating your heart and giving you the desire to seek Him and, and that you will come and place your faith in Him and repent of all your sins. That's the main point of application. And if anyone hasn't done that, now would be, today would be a great day to do that. But as, as I studied this, there were other points of application. One of them that I found in this was that Jesus made time for Nicodemus. I thought about that. Jesus, this was late at night. Sometimes I forget that, we're, that Jesus was fully human. He was probably tired from all the day's activities. When you read about his teaching and doing miracles and being swarmed by all kinds of people all day long, if you've been in those environments, you would know how tired one would be from a full day's activity. And yet Nicodemus comes to him late at night and Jesus didn't say, John, it's your turn. You go talk to him. Or Peter, it's your turn. You, I'm going to get some rest. He didn't do that. He made time for an unbeliever that was wanting to come talk to him. And I, as I thought about that, I thought about the fact that if I can't sleep because my back's hurting and I get up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and I can pray to the God, he's not asleep. He always makes time for us. But also on a personal side, do we make time for unbelievers? Sometimes in the busyness of life, I don't necessarily always make time for unbelievers. It's, it's um, I rush on by or I'm too busy or I can't stop right now. Uh, Jesus wasn't like that. He always made time for unbelievers. And I think, for me, I was challenged that I needed to make time for unbelievers. Another thought I had was that Jesus told people what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. Nicodemus didn't even ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Or how can I get into the kingdom? Jesus knew his heart, but he cut through all the stuff that he was saying and rambling about and he cut to what was important. He didn't say to Nicodemus, I'm proud of you. You're real sincere in your strivings to keep the law and to be a teacher. No, he didn't tell him that. He told him what he had to do to be saved. He knew his heart. He knew what was keeping him from being a true disciple, just like he did the rich young ruler that came to him. He cut through all the chase and told him to go sell everything he had. Why? Because he knew that those riches were an idol and that was what was keeping him from God. I've been learning to do this in my counseling ministry because people will tell you all kinds of things and you have to sometimes learn to read between the lines or pray and the Holy Spirit will sometimes reveal to you insights and glimpses of what the true problem might be. And I think all of us as Christians, as we encounter witnessing opportunities, sometimes we need to just cut through the rubbish around people's lives and what they're saying and get to the point, which is how, you know, they're saved, you know, their need for Christ. Sometimes it's easy to talk all around it and never get to the point. Jesus was gentle, but he was very pointed and leading people to what was important, which was their need to know the gospel. He was compassionate, he was merciful, he was kind, but he was brutally honest. And I think we can learn from that. Another point of application that I saw in this passage is that no one is outside the saving power of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus was not one we would have picked to be a convert, if you think about it. 
Think about the translating that to today's environment. Who would Nicodemus have been like if we put him in today's environment? Maybe a priest. He was a leader. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was someone in a very high religious order. We could put him in some type of classification that we would put today and we would think it's very unlikely that that person's going to become a Christian. That's my earthly self speaking is that I would say they're too far gone. They're too steeped in their ways or their tradition. But I was reminded in this encounter that when Jesus puts it on your heart to come to faith or to seek him, then all of that doesn't matter. Um, and I have to admit that I've been guilty at times of putting people into classes like that. That person, intellectually, I know God can save them, but it's highly unlikely it's going to happen. You know, that's, I don't know if you've been guilty of that, but I've done that. I was very convicted on this point that we don't do that, that we remind ourselves of the power of God and that He can bring anyone to that point in their life. No one's too far gone for God. Don't give up on your loved ones. I know there's people here. I know of them personally that have friends and, and neighbors that are unsaved, children that are unsaved. Don't give up on them. Keep praying diligently for them because it, it may not happen instantaneously, but it may happen. Um, I've got a letter I want to read you to give you encouragement and hope in this regards because many of you we started in this class about 12 years ago, and probably from day one, some of you that were here remember and have been praying for our son, Wes. He got involved with drugs 12, 15 years, well, it's been more 15 years ago. And for 12 years, we've asked for prayers. We've been, he's been in and out of rehabs, four, I think, four or five different rehabs. He's gone up, he's gone down. There's been times when we didn't know whether he was alive or dead, whether he was had anything to eat, whether he had was homeless. We've had to make hard decisions. It's been just a horrible, struggling experience for us. But we were faithful in praying for him. We've never given up hope. And um, I'm reminded of Romans 5, 8 that says, God demonstrates his love towards us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For those of you who know our son and have been praying for him, I want to read you a letter that he sent me on Father's Day. He said, I'll try to do this without getting emotional. He said, Dad, I was trying to think of something I could buy you that you deserve. Well, there's nothing good enough, and if there is, I can't afford it. <laughs> so I want you to know that I can't describe how blessed I am to have you and Mom as parents. You both really did bring me up in the way I should go, with should underlined in exclamation. You loved me unconditionally. You brought me up in the word of truth, teaching me right from wrong, taught me work, responsibility, discipline, etc., and I turned from all these things because my heart was wicked. One night I was given the gift of desperation. God began to move on my heart while it was still wicked. He led me to your house. I knew behind those walls of that house there was a couple that had a solution to any of life's problems. A couple that would never see divorce. It was because of me catching glimpses of God in you that I knew that night that you had something I didn't. That night on my knees in the rain, God left his throne to come rescue a lost goat and make him a sheep. I've left the flock many times since then to play with wolves, but my shepherd has rescued me with his rod every time. What a blessing it is to be a part of the Lord's flock. 
You have been by my side, Dad, through everything. There's no way I could repay you or begin to describe the impact you have had and continue to have on my life. I love you, Wes. I hope that gives some of you encouragement because, I mean, it's if there's not a person that believes that God does miracles, then I don't know what you think that is because that is a miracle. That is a true miracle of a changed life of a person that's born again, born from above, only by the work of God in his heart and in his spirit could that happen. That couldn't happen by behavior modification. That happened by a changed heart. So as we end, I just want to say Jesus made time for sinners. We need to make time for unbelievers. Jesus told them what they wanted to hear. We need to do the same thing. We need to be truthful to our friends and our family. We need to cut through all the bull and all the stuff they're saying, get to the point that matters. And we need to remember with God, all things are possible. We don't need to write anyone off. Nothing, no one is beyond the reach of the sovereign grace of God. When a person has a personal encounter with Christ, a hopeless situation can turn into a new beginning. But it does have to happen. There's no other way. Unless one be born again, born from above, born anew, a new creation, he shall not enter the kingdom. Unless we acknowledge our hopelessness and cleanse ourselves by the act of repentance and come with childlike faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, not in ourselves, we will never enter the kingdom. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that you sent Christ into the world, Father, to be our sacrifice, to be the unblemished lamb that takes away our sin, our personal sins you took on the cross. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to that, for putting a stir in our heart to lead us into seeking Christ out. Father, that we don't want to take any of that upon ourselves. It was a pure work of your Holy Spirit and Christ in our, in our, our life. And we just thank you for that. We pray, Father, that this day we would apply this to our lives in a way that makes us become better ambassadors in the world around us to be more Christ-like in the way we deal with unbelievers, telling them the truth and taking the time to, to get to know them and to learn about them and to share with them the truth of the gospel. And may in all cases we continue to have hope because you are a God of hope and of miracles. And we just thank you and adore you and ask your blessing upon the remaining of this service. May it cause us to be more like your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.